My name is Richard Nelson. I'm from Fort Collins with my wife, Karen. We're, I'm an elder at the town church, Fort Collins. And so Joey and I did this flip-flop today. And so uh, you, I'm like the B team here. And so uh, we sent the A team over there. So it's good to be with you. I was here in uh, December, like Christmas and New Year's or something like that. So I'm excited to be here. I'm going to pray a little bit. Can I just pray a quick prayer here? Because I need it, I know. Lord Jesus, uh, I thank you for the worship. Thank you for the truth that just oozed out over every word, every thought, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercies that are new and fresh each day. Thank you for your presence, even right now with us. We so appreciate that, Lord Jesus. We do pray that your Holy Spirit to be in our midst. I pray your Holy Spirit would fill us, roll us, Lord, that he would teach us today through the scriptures, Lord, that he would be our comforter, the one who comes alongside of us, uh, Lord, that he would be the one we keep in step with also, and may he bring that glory to Jesus Christ is our desire, our, our uh, goal this morning. So we thank you and ask all this in your name, amen. So, I don't sleep well. I uh, usually get up in the middle of the morning, or like midnight to 2.30. It's almost daily, or nightly, I would say. And so, uh, I, I don't turn on the TV. I don't normally read books. But uh, sometimes I fret and worry about a lot of things. I'm kind of a worry wart. Anybody here ever taken the Enneagram? I'm a six. Any sixes out here? Ah, my people. <laughs> yeah, the sixes, if you don't know, their core uh, weakness is fear and worry or anxiety. So, man, I've got it. And so I can find a lot of things to worry about and have anxiety about. So if you're not sure you have any, just give them to me. I'll take care of your anxiety off of you when I go back home. Proverbs 12.25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. So while my wife and I, we have three grown children and, and six grandchildren, and right there, right in that little tribe is enough things to worry about and fret about. And so you worry as a parent and a grandparent, their safety, their schooling. Is schooling a big issue? Like where do your kids go to school and how will they do in school? What kind of friends do they have in school? Are they the friends that take them closer to Jesus, or do they take them off to the other end and stuff like that? I remember sending our kids off. They would go over to someone's house as a friend, and I'd say, wow, where are they going? And so we called the FBI and got a report on all this kind of stuff. Not really, but we're concerned about their spiritual needs. Do they know Jesus Christ? And so we pray constantly for Jesus to be formed in their life, that they would become world-changing followers of Jesus, world changers. And our, our, one of our youngest grandsons, he is like, I think he's probably going to be a, a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL by the way he acts. So I don't know where he's going, but that's how he's going there. And so, but I know many of you have worries about things and concerns in your life, and you have family concerns, those of you who are married. Uh, you have concerns about, you know, is our marriage going well? Are we, are we uh, going through the trials and tribulations? And when you have kids and finances, 
Are finances a concern and a worry? Oh yeah, I like to worry about finances, things like that. And so, are your relationships good? Are your relationships with your in-laws good? That's a whole new critter right there called in-laws. And are your relationships with your siblings, your brothers and sisters, your sister-in-laws and brother-in-laws? I mean, this is out there and, uh, you know, these things are concerns. And let me just, and then there's health, things like that. But let me listen, list one more. Can I say toxic politics? I mean, when I watch the news or anything like that, I have to grab my medication quick because I feel like we're, we're, we're not going well. So in addition to that, the Bible lists three things that we war against. Everyone in this room, these three areas are, are weighing down on all of us. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And each one of these is probably worthy of a message. So the world, when I say that, it's not like a piece of rock that we're going around the cosmos in but it is a system of thought that uh, pervades our whole world. It, it creates the values and the culture and things like that. Interestingly, it is controlled by Satan. So Satan is the head and the controlling force of the world we live in. And so the world is that system organized by Satan, headed by Satan, run by Satan, which leaves God out in his arrival to his work. And he is a... Uh, Satan is a counterfeiter. In 1 John 5, 19, it says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The second one, the flesh, this is one that's real close to it. It's the principle of the sin nature in us. It's the part of us that so easily goes to sin. And that is constantly warring against us. The third one, Satan. Everything about him, he is anti-God. He causes deception. I would say deception is one of the main strategies that Satan uses in our world. And so uh, we got to be very careful about that. Be, he is a counterfeiter for all these things. So these three areas wage war against us. These three areas do not like our Bible. They do not like our Jesus and they do not like our church. Frankly, they don't like you and me. Have I sufficiently discouraged you? Well, I don't want that because we really, Jesus has really set things apart for us. In Romans chapter 8, I want to put this verse up there. And this is a verse that you've probably heard a lot. Verse, I'm going to start in verse 37. The whole chapter would be really good. So Romans chapter 8. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. How do you be more than conquerors? A conquerist or something? But we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has plowed through all this. We have the upper hand in all this. And so we have that. And so back to my morning or my morning sleeplessness, sometimes I think and worry about things or I began to realize, you know, I can actually have a power of choice. I can start to think about things that are good for me. And so I would start to pray. Uh, sometimes I would read scripture like on an iPad. 
Sometimes I would let the iPad, it has a recording, and I would listen to recording of Scripture. Sometimes it just rolls off like a rock, like I can be sometimes, but a lot of times it starts to sink into this thick skull and heart. And then I could listen to Christian worship, and then that would also. And so these things lifted me from anxiety and fears and all these kind of things up to here where I'm worshiping God at 1 o'clock in the morning about very things. All the things that I was so obsessed about and fixated on, all those things I didn't even think about it because Christ was present in my life. So when my mind and my soul, just like you, if they're influenced by the Word of God, it brings transformation from fear to faith. But I can assure you that none of us has ever faced an army of 3,000 soldiers on their horses being led by a crazy man named King Saul, and he's out to kill you. Has that happened last week? Have you seen horses and armies and swords chasing you down the street in your rearview mirror? No, it hasn't happened. Well, that's the setting of today's passage. I mean, it's incredible. You couldn't make this stuff up. And so, for a long period of time, the historical background of this psalm goes back to 1 Samuel 24. And you really need to read the whole book of 1 Samuel. It's a fun read, a lot of adventure. It's stories and things like that. There's theology and stuff about God all along the way. And so King Saul is chasing down David. David, with about 400 people, have been uh, hunkered down in a cave. And so they're hiding out in a cave. And in walks Saul. And all of David's guys say, wow, we got him. Can I? And they're saying, hey, can I take him out for you? And... Uh, I mean, he had him right there, and that's how they did things in that day. When you read Samuel and Kings, if they didn't like the king, they'd just assassinate him, and they'd bring in somebody else, and sometimes they'd last a week, sometimes years. That's how they did stuff. No elections. It was powered by the knife. And so, the incredible thing that happened in 1 Samuel 24.10, this is remarkable. David, so different. Behold, this day he was talking to Saul, in the cave, you know, behold this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today in my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And, and I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord. Here's the reason why. For he is the Lord's anointed. What this means is that when God set up King Saul... He's the king until further notice. And so David respected that, even though he was chased down. Uh, they would throw spears at him, all these kind of things. He could have killed him right there. And he said, we can't do this because God hasn't told us. He had remarkable self-control. He did not take things into his own hands like probably a lot of us do. Do you ever take things into your own hands? I hear a few yeses. So here's the thing. David's trust in the Lord's anointing Saul caused him not to take matters into his own hand. The influence of God over the thinking and behavior of David is almost unparalleled in Old Testament history. Let me say this again because this is kind of where we're going in this whole thing. 
The influence of God so shaped his heart, his mind, and his whole life. It influenced his behavior and caused him to do what he was supposed to do. In Acts 13, a remarkable verse. What a remarkable testimony about a guy who lived 700 years plus before. And so Luke says this, And when he, or God, had removed him, Saul... He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Wow. What a guy. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. But this is a man who for the most part, was influenced by what who God is, what God has said over all his decision-making. about you? What influences your decision-making? be a good question to drop anchor in. And so as we head into Psalm 57, you, if you have a Bible there, you want to start migrating to Psalm 57? Everybody, there's, there's Bibles in the pew, I believe. And as we look at this, I want to use kind of two ways to describe how this psalm unpacks. And it's the, using the words horizontal and vertical. And so when there's a horizontal thing, it's where David is talking about what's going on in his world, thus horizontally. And so he's talking about the bad guys here. This is what they're doing. All this is hurtful. All this is... So he's talking about what's really going on down here in our world, converse with vertical. And so sometimes the psalmist, he just like a rocket, going vertical, he goes up and he's talking about God. He's worshiping God. He's thinking about God. God is talking to him. God is revealing all kinds of things to him. So vertical, God and, the, and that person, in this case, it's going to be David. Or for us, when, it, when we're going through these times, I went vertical in those midnights, sometimes when I was worshiping God, and other times I go horizontal, fretting about all the things of life. And so that's our world. We have one foot in this world, and we have one foot up in the kingdom of heaven, so to speak. So, if you're in your Bible there, we're going to uh, Psalm 57, and I want to read the first three verses. And in this section, verses 1 through 5, David is crying out for help, because that's the context here. He's needy. He's got 3,000 troops after him. And so... He starts off vertical in verses 1 through 3, vertical here, and then we're going to go horizontal and back to vertical again in this. Can you keep up with the horizontal, vertical, all that kind of stuff? Can you track with me? I'll do this when we go horizontal. All right, okay. Verse 1, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, or be gracious. Why? For in you my soul takes refuge. Question, where does your soul Go to for refuge. I hope it's vertical. In the shadow of your wings, which is a metaphor for protection like birds would protect their little birds by having them under their wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. I want to read that one more time because it's, it's stunning. <laughs> it's amazing. I cry out to God most high, 
to God who fulfills his purpose for me. We're going to try and unpack that. God, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. And that actually happens. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. There was a man by the name of A.W. Tozer who lived from 1897 to 1963. He wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. I highly recommend you getting that. And he said this, and he asked this question. What comes into your minds, what comes into our minds, when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. This might be a good thing to talk about in your townships too. I didn't send that question in, so anyhow. So what does come into your mind? When you think about God, what boots up in this gray matter here is the most significant thing about you because that defines who you are, that defines how you're going to live, it defines how you will make decisions. It will define who you marry or don't marry. It will define what kind of job and how you will do on that job. It affects everything. And my dear brothers and sisters, we are all theologians. You can't say, hey, Richard, I'm not a theologian. But if you have a thought about God, you're automatically a theologian. And the question is, what kind of theologian are you? And are you a growing theologian? Is your theology transforming your life from the inside out through the Holy Spirit? Those are the kind of the questions that we'll be thinking about. So, in this, God is so powerful that he has the ability to extend mercy or to be gracious in time of need. And it's clear through his providential outworkings, when you read the book of First and Second Samuel, God is in control of everything. He is sovereign, and his sovereignty is worked out through his providential everyday things that happen in our life. When we drive around, and we just, have you ever had driving around, you almost had an accident, like someone runs a red light, something like that? I've had several of those things. And I just, I give credit to God because he was in control. Psalm 46, 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of need, time of trouble. So he is our refuge. We can go to him for safety and comfort and help Proverbs 18.10. This is a great verse. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and, uh, and is safe. And they actually did in this day and age. They would, cities would build a tower and when bad people came and the enemy came, they all went into the tower, locked the door, and they went up above, and they could defend that because they were above all the enemy there. So you see about that every now and then. But in this passage, David cries out to God Most High, or El Elyon. So uh, I don't know what comes in your mind when you think about El Elyon. Would you like to give a little lecture on uh, who God El Elyon is and how that, what all that means? Well, I can assure you I wasn't all that ready and readily prepared myself. So, this, this name for God means the exalted ruler of the universe who vindicates the innocent and judges the wicked. The exalted ruler of the universe. Do you believe that? The exalted ruler of the cosmos, and he can vindicate the innocent, and he judges the wicked. 
That exactly is what happens with David and Saul. Saul is eventually killed. David is eventually vindicated, and that's how it works. Psalm 47, 2 and 3 say, For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. What kind of God can do all that? That's the God we were worshiping here this morning. It's the one we think about and worship throughout the week. So I did a little bit of research. I looked up other verses where God Most High is used. It starts out in Genesis 14. There was a guy named Melchizedek. You all know who Melchizedek is? might want to remember that name for your next son. And so he was a priest of God Most High. And there was a skirmish going on with Abraham and several other kings there. And there was this war, and Abraham and his guys came out on top. The priest of Midian, Melchizedek, comes out, and this is what he says. Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, who delivered Abraham's enemies into his hand. Abraham responds by giving 10% gift to him. Then in Daniel, you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember those guys? It's a great story. Man, these guys are thrown into the furnace. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar's all been out of shape because he really likes him, but he kind of got in his bind. And so they threw him in the furnace. When the guys up there were throwing him in the furnace, the fire was so hot that they got burned. It was bad. And so the next morning, or Nebuchadnezzar is worried all night. He must have been a type six. And so he gets up, and this is what he says. When they were thrown into the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar spoke to them, calling them servants of the Most High God. How did Nebuchadnezzar come up with this? God Most High? He's a pagan king. But he saw that God Most High rescued those guys just like that. It continues in chapter 5, verse 21. God isn't through with Nebuchadnezzar. When God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar, the king now knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind sets over it whom he will. The background of that, if you remember, Daniel chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar was going around saying, well, you know, my kingdom's really good. Look at all the stuff I have and all these personal pronouns. It's like, I am so great. I'm such a great ruler. And God says, I'm going to kind of take your mind away from you. And he became like an animal. He grazed around in the, in the, in the pastures there and ate grass until like seven years. And then he came to his senses he was so humbled, and he comes back, and he's, he's, he almost becomes a Christian. I'm just not sure, but that's what he said. And then fast-forwarding into Luke chapter 1. You remember Mary, the mother of Jesus, the teenage girl who finds herself uh, being talked to by an angel. And an angel told the young Mary that Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, connecting those two pieces right there. And a few verses later, the angel is announcing to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Can you imagine Mary hearing this stuff? Phenomenal, phenomenal. So when you read these accounts of King David, this is what exactly happens. God Most High vindicated him and judged the wicked. 
So let me talk about how God fulfills his purpose in us. Would you be interested to know that God Most High is so interested in you and I that he wants to help us fulfill the purpose he has for our life? You think God has a purpose for your life? Would you raise your hand on that? Yeah. You want to know what that purpose is. Who wouldn't want to know? And so let me give you an example. I'm going to read Ephesians 2.10 that kind of talks about this. For we are his workmanship, talking about God, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God created us. We are his workmanship, like a craftsman. And he, and he created us for good works, which God prepared him. These good works he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's like God had all these things stored up a long time ago, and when we come on this planet, he says, oh, I have this for Richard to do. How big is our God? big is our God? So David goes to God most high in prayer because he knows that the most high God is going to accomplish his purpose and plan in him, and right now that purpose and plan is to be a king and to bring about his, his rule. Psalm 78 says, David shepherded the people with integrity of heart and skillful hands. Oh, that Washington, I shouldn't say this. Oh, that Washington would have people with integrity of heart and skillful hands. And then he goes on to talk about two other uh, descriptions here about God. Steadfast love and faithfulness. So David counts on the fact that God will send his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Steadfast love is an awesome word. It's, it, it's the Hebrew word hesed. It means steadfast love, loving kindness, loyal love. It's translated very various ways. It is a, it's a covenant type of word because God has entered into a covenant with the, us and him. He is our God. We are his people. This covenant defines how we relate to one another. And this covenant, he said, I am loyal to this covenant. I'm loyal to this contract. And it's not because I have to. Oh, no, I got in this thing, and now I can't get out of it. No, he loves. He is loyal to us because he loves us so much. Steadfast love and faithfulness. The steadfast love, this is in Lamentations. You probably, This is a great verse. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Therefore, great is your faithfulness. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, it says in Proverbs 3. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success. Who doesn't want favor and good success? Anybody? We'll pass it out. It's here at the end. You'll get favor. Success. In the sight of God and man. Wow, that's what we need. So God is faithful. He's dependable. You can count on him. He's perfectly consistent in his treatment toward us. He is trustworthy all the time. And he even loves to be faithful. So, is what comes into your mind today, in my mind today, is it what is the same thing that David had come into his mind when he thought about God Most High? Hope so. Worship of God is like a mental and spiritual reset. You ever had to reset your cell phone? Things are kind of wonko, and so you have to power it off, or your, your TV or whatever doesn't work, and you call them. Have you, 
Have you unplugged it for 15 seconds, plug it back in, let that whole system reset, son. That's a, that'll come back online. Anything you know works. And so that's a lot what worship does to us. It just comes in here and kind of resets everything, meaning I'm not the, I'm not the controller of the universe. It's like I have to back away from the control panel of the universe that I think I have control over, and I actually trust God in all things. That's a good reset. He is faithful. So we just went vertical, and now we're going to go horizontal in verse 4. So we're going from amazing theology, and we're going to go down into the trenches of mankind in verse 4. My soul is in the midst of lions, David says. I lie down amidst fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp words. Wow. We've probably experienced that some way or another. People can treat other people really rough. But from God most high to man most sinful. And so we see those descriptions. But then we go vertical again. And so, folks, in verse 5, this is a dramatic change of subject. David praises God in the come, for the coming global worship. And this verse just kind of sneaks up on you. Be exalted, O God, where? Above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. David had the wherewithal to, to have perspective. That God is so big and he's so powerful and he's so worthy that there's going to be a coming day when there's going to be every people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping him. That is our destiny. That is our history's goal. I'm ready. I'm ready for that. So David goes from his challenging circumstances to be caught up with God most high again and his glory everywhere. But then... We're going to transition to the next slide because it's different from the first five verses. The next six verses have a confident mood to it where he's crying out for help here in the second half of this psalm. He is praising God. He is very confident of what's going to happen in the future. And so, but it starts out horizontal. There's only two verses in, out of 11 that are horizontal. So we're down in the ditches. In verse 6, they, the enemies, set a net for my steps. My soul was bound, bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but, listen to this, they have fallen into it themselves. Their trap backfires on them. And this would remind me of what happened in the book of Esther, if you remember that, where Esther uh, had an uncle named Mordecai who was really trying to coach her but there was a bad guy, there was a villain called Haman. And Haman, in the story unfolds, he wants to exterminate all the Jews living in this country. And so they find out about it. And so Haman, though, builds a gallows because he is wanting to put a Mordecai and kill him on that gallow. And, but as it flips it, there's a, an amazing turn of events caused by God. And instead of Mordecai being hung on the gallows, it is Haman backfired on him so now we're going to go vertical are you with me now we're going like getting on a rocket ship here david's confident trust in god produces global worship verse seven my heart is steadfast oh god my heart is steadfast 
I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Notice how steadfastness and steadfast love and faithfulness come back into the picture. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the, all the earth. So, you know, we can't miss this worship arising from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so I want to fast forward into Revelations chapter 7. And this is a preview of coming attractions. John says, verse 9, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could count, no one could number, from where? Every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Jesus, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let me try and summarize this, and then I want to point out a few, uh, a couple of applications, and we'll land the plane. So in verses 1 through 5, David cries out to God Most High for deliverance from his enemies. He confirms how dangerous things are in verse 4, and then it ends with verse 5, a startling refrain of God's global recognition of his glory. So if you notice that verse 5 and verse 11 are identical. They both are identical. And then in the second half, 6 through 11, it shifts from crying out for help to, God, to confident assurance of God's help expressed in worship and praise. And so, first application, are you ready? God wants each of us in this room who know Christ, we're either going to become goers or senders. So, you can't walk out of the building to take until you... Tell us, are you a goer or sender? Just kidding. Just kidding. A goer is, is in the spirit of Matthew 28, it says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. These are the people that leave and go out and plant churches locally and globally. These are the people that would go to the unreached with the gospel and start communities just like we have here. That's the goer. The senders are the people that stay here and they send those people, and they send them by praying for them. Uh, they give money to help them live over there. They, they encourage them. They talk to them on Zoom or Skype or whatever. Sometimes they might even go over to visit them, to encourage them. Encourage them. And when these goers come back to Greeley, we take care of them, we welcome them, and we treat them like that. So we're goers or senders. Have you considered... How the church got here to Greeley? How the church got to Fort Collins? The church started in what city? Begins with a J, ends with an M. It's kind of a famous place called Jerusalem. That's where the first church began, Acts chapter 2. Interestingly, they sent people out from Jerusalem to go to the nations. And they start going out to all the different places. And they go into different cultures. They go into the German culture and they say, I have no idea what they're saying because they're speaking a language I have no idea about. And they eat really weird stuff like sauerkraut, drink lots of beer. How am I ever going to reach them? 
And so they keep going, but it works. Churches are started. Lives are changed. Movements are ignited because someone left Jerusalem and they go out to the nations and they come to Greeley back in the West, Old West and they come to Fort Collins. And by the way, they're still going out to the nations. You realize there are people groups in the world, people who count them, 17,468 people groups. 17,468 people groups. A people group is a group of people bound together by language, culture, land features, and stuff like that. It's what makes them, them, and us, us. That's why if we go to Afghanistan, we're going to think, I'm really in a foreign land, because you're right, you are in a foreign land. They speak a whole different language, they eat a whole different food, and they have a different religion. Everything's totally different, and they think you're the weirdo in the land. There's people groups. Out of those 17,000, there are 7,419 that are unreached. There's no one there. So when Sunday rolls around, there is no church in their village. There is no one telling them about Jesus. 17, over 17,000 people group. And they're various numbers. It represents about 3.28 billion. 3 billion people wake up on a given day and they don't, they don't, never heard about Jesus. And so, if this is where history is taking us in Revelation chapter 7, if they're praising God in the Psalms of all these things, that should be something we do also. One second application. This is maybe more theological, and it's this. And so, I'm going to put this phrase here. Since God is dot, 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 therefore he is worthy of dot, dot, dot. Since God is, fill in some sort of attribute or description of God. Since he is God most high, for example, therefore he is worthy of me, dot, dot, dot. In other words, we're trying to get where this is who he is and this is how it affects me. So it might look like this. Since God is most high, therefore he is worthy of me trusting and obeying him in all things. Jesus, God most high the exalted leader of the cosmos. Another one, since God is most high, therefore he is worthy of me seeking forgiveness and reconciliation in all my relationships. God wants us as much as possible to be at peace with one another because he is God most high. We need to put forth some effort to do that. Another one, since God is most high, therefore is worthy of our church sending her best workers into the harvest locally and globally. Why would we send out people if God wasn't God most high? And if God most high doesn't want us to do that. One more, since God is steadfast in his love for me and is faithful, therefore is worthy of me being loving and faithful to my marriage and my family, faithful at work and faithful at our church. In other words, trying to get us all to whatever, whoever God is, that concept of what comes into our mind, that that would translate into my behavior will be affected by that. And I will be conformed. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here, or communion. And... I was reading a book about John Newton. Have you ever heard of John Newton? He was a, uh, an incredible sinner. 
He was a slave trader. And he became gloriously converted to Jesus. And he became a pastor. And he became a songwriter. And he wrote the song Amazing Grace, which probably everyone in here has heard. And at the end of his life, the biographers will say, as he was getting near to that end, he was kind of losing his mind, but he kept repeating two phrases over and over until he finally died in 1807. I am a great sinner. Jesus Christ is a great Savior. I am a great sinner. Jesus Christ is a great Savior. And really right between those two statements is the cross, and that's what we're going to celebrate today. So when we take your elements there and you get that little wafer there, that represents the body of Christ that was brutally broken for our payment of our sin. And when, when you peel back the little part of the juice, you know, that part represents the blood that was shed. He was bleeding for over six hours from all the wounds and all the whipping and all those kind of things there. But that blood covered and atoned for our sin. And so, as you think about it, communion is for believers only. It's for the family of God. And so, as we celebrate communion, there's, I think you all know that there's two locations for it. Let's celebrate the Lord's Supper.